For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The Oklahoma Tax Commission estimates state leaders will have a budget of more than $10 billion to work with in 2023 fiscal year. The money includes more than a billion dollars in one-time carryover from previous years. So despite the increase, Governor Stitt says agency budgets will likely remain flat. Still, it's quite a jump from the current fiscal year allocation of $8.3 billion. Ryan, what are your thoughts on these estimates? Well, these are huge numbers for the state of Oklahoma. I think, uh, you know, walking into the budget cycle, it's always good news to have numbers that show that you are up rather than numbers that show that you're down. Um, To even have an option at the outset of session to say that you're going to hold agency budgets flat uh, or that they should look for a near flat budget coming out of the legislative session. That's good news. Um, I think that there are a lot of conversations that are going to have to take place over the course of this legislative session, though. Um, you know, Senator Roger Thompson, uh, the chairman of appropriations over in the Senate, I think he's been wise to recognize uh, uh, phenomena outside, largely outside um, the influence of the state of Oklahoma policymakers, things like inflation uh, and what inflation may mean. Uh, to purchasing power of those appropriation dollars. Um, And also on top of that, we have billions of dollars coming into the state of Oklahoma uh, through federal funds, um, both to stimulate the economy, build back infrastructure at some point, and then uh, still COVID relief dollars floating around out there. Um, So there are a lot of different pots of revenue for lawmakers and policymakers uh, to begin to put together a budget. But I think also, you know, when we think about uh, the ARPA dollars that are, are coming into Oklahoma, uh, you know, Senator uh, Kay Floyd, um, she referred to it as a once in a generation type moment to make critical in, uh, investments in our state. Um, I'm hoping that this entire budget picture that we're get, that we're given right now is really a blueprint so that we can think long term, even if the governor's saying we need to spend this on one time expenditures, even one time expenditures need to be a part of a long term funding strategy for the state of Oklahoma because we're flush with cash. But if you talk to agencies out there, a lot of them are still hurting from cuts in years past. Neva. Well, and I think that's where we start. I mean, good news. We're flush with cash. uh, And it is the starting point in the negotiating process uh, between lawmakers and the governor. The governor clearly kind of setting his warning tone about the uh, fact that he uh, is against appropriating the extra one-time cash for recurring costs. So uh, the the discussion being for rebuilding infrastructure, doing other things that are one-time use of the the monies. Obviously, I think we'll see some lawmakers uh, as the discussion gins up and budget conversations uh, uh, get underway next month that there'll be talk about tax cuts. There'll be talk about uh, um, increases in terms of, um, in in some areas, uh, look at pay raises, for instance, highway patrol uh, troopers already uh, one of the items that's been tossed out there, calculated pay raises uh, for uh, some state employees. There's there's a myriad of items that will be thrown on the table. Everyone will come with their notion of what's the best. But the long and the short of it is, I think we will see lawmakers and the governor uh, in large measure interested in 
having some of that money, whether it's an additional 500 million or whatever that number is, so that was the that was the figure tossed out by uh, uh, Roger Thompson, the Senate Appropriations Chairman, that uh, that they would add potentially to the state savings account. If that number were to be true, then we'd be over two billion dollars uh, in the in the uh, rainy day funds, which, as we know, uh, given given the cycles that we've gone through in Oklahoma. We're in a very good place. And as Ryan says, uh, with ARPA funds coming in to the tune of uh, a billion plus, whatever the number is, dollars uh, that'll be uh, infused into this whole conversation, it is a time where we can do some significant uh, looks at what is best for Oklahomans, both in terms of programming as well as for Oklahomans themselves. And, well, in this whole conversation, Chairman uh, Kevin Wallace, the Appropriations Chair over in the House, uh, and, and Roger Thompson, the Appropriations Chair in the Senate, I think both of them have respect on both sides of the aisles for the, for the way that they have you know, led those committees. I'm sure not everybody agrees with them, but I think that they have a lot of respect for the way that they've led those committees. Um, I think that the real difference, I think two years ago, it doesn't seem like that long ago, that the legislature and the governor were at odds with one another over the budget. And you know these early conversations are a promising signal that uh, last year wasn't an aberration and we're gonna continue to see the legislature and the governor's office work together on budget matters moving forward. The day after we last met for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, a grand jury leveled indictments against the second most powerful man in the state house. Speaker pro tem Terry O'Donnell is accused of changing the law so his wife could become a tag agent. O'Donnell authored the bill in 2019, allowing spouses of legislators to be tag agents. And Teresa O'Donnell was appointed to take over the Catoosa tag agency three months after it was signed into law. Neva, what could this mean for O'Donnell in the upcoming legislative session? Well, I think uh, I think that's an unknown largely at this point. I mean, I think it's very clear that uh, uh, that the speaker pro tem has made emphatic statements publicly that he denies any wrongdoing. He uh, intends to vigorously uh, uh, defend his integrity. He believes that uh, so far as to say he believes politically motivated that there are uh, folks out there with the intent of discrediting and ruining his reputation and that of his wife's as part of a personal uh, vendetta. All of these things now move to the move to the courts, and it is a process that will uh, that will uh, we'll just have to see how that plays out. Uh, I think in, in terms of the impact at at this point in the legislative session, uh, there is no way to tell. I mean, he is still the the pro tem. He is still a member of the uh, Oklahoma House of Representatives until some action by himself uh, is taken otherwise or from the standpoint of his of his pro tem position. That is something that he is elected by the uh, Republican caucus. I mean, and it takes some action early inside that caucus to uh, uh, to change that at, at this point. So we may see nothing uh, appreciably change during the session, and we may now see this start to move through the, uh, the legal proceedings. Uh, and as you said, I mean, the indictment that was returned by the Oklahoma County Grand Jury, it, it makes a significant allegations of five felonies and three dis- misdemeanors against uh, 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 Representative O'Donnell, his wife, I think three felonies and one misdemeanor. So, I mean, these are serious charges. A grand jury has uh, has uh, uh, 
rendered those indictments, and we will now just follow it with interest and see uh, how this uh, how this moves through the process. Ryan. Serious charges for sure. I, when we first covered this on this week in Oklahoma politics, uh, I think that I uh, minimized the political effect uh, that this would, was going to have on then uh, Speaker Pro Temp O'Donnell moving into a re-election campaign. I think I was right about that. But you know, shortly after uh, this aired, I got a, a text message and then a, a phone call from a good friend of mine, uh, State Representative Colin Walkie, who had been very outspoken at the time about. He saw this as either wrong or at the very least uh, the kind of action um, that alludes to impropriety uh, or a conflict of interest in a way that members have an obligation to not uh, undertake. So, I mean, I think that, uh, and you know, after he and I visited, well, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think that you've, you've made, I think, I, I think Representative Walkie made uh, some fair points. Legally, it will be interesting to see how criminal courts handle um, the uh, exercise of a, uh, a, conf- a constitutional conflict, um, which is what you're supposed to do when you're on the House floor, if there's a vote that comes up, or if you're in a committee and a vote comes up and it deals in some way directly to benefit you, you're supposed to go take a constitutional privilege and not, and not vote on that bill. Well, does not taking that constitutional privilege in some instances or in all instances rise to the level of criminal conduct? Uh, I think that that's a, an interesting question and, and possibly one that is not part of the jurisdiction of a criminal court, but instead something that each legislative chamber gets to decide on their own, uh, how they're going to penalize their members for, for doing that. I think that um, Representative O'Donnell obviously did this exactly the wrong way. Um, you know, he kind of took the, the Donald Trump approach where if I'm going to you know, shoot somebody, I'm going to shoot him in broad daylight and let everybody see it. Uh, because that's what he put his own name on the bill. He voted for the bill. Um, I think that he could have very easily uh, found somebody else to carry the bill for him, uh, took a constitutional privilege on the bill, not co-authored the bill. Uh, of course, that raises questions of transparency. Would we have even known that he was behind it? At least in this instance, we know that he was the one doing it. Um, and you know, the overwhelming majority of the of the legislature approved of him doing it and knowing what was going on. So. I, don't know, I think it's it's going to be an interesting uh, criminal case uh, moving forward. I think it's the you know the lesson to lawmakers is that these um, conflicts of interest prohibitions that exist in the Constitution and in the legislative rules are there for a reason. You know, we we need as citizens to know that the decisions that folks make once we elect them, they're making for the common good and not just for their for their own selves. A judge refuses to block Oklahoma's challenge against the Biden administration's mandate for vaccines for National Guard members. The judge says Governor Stitt's claims to stop the mandates are without merit. Ryan, are you surprised by this ruling? I think the the only thing that I'm really surprised uh, by the ruling uh, is how strongly worded it was from uh, uh, United States uh, Federal District Judge uh, Stephen Fryett. Uh, he said that the governor's legal arguments uh, made no sense in law, uh, but they just also failed common sense. Um, you know, he talked about, you know, there are a number of other vaccines that servicemen and women are expected, uh, not expected, required to get as part of their participation in the military, as part of the readiness requirement for the military to be able to deploy at a moment's notice. Um, 
and it was it's noteworthy that the governor didn't challenge any of, of those. I think that you know that kind of tips the governor and the attorney general's hand that this was really more about COVID politics than it was about individual freedom or liberty. Because otherwise, why don't you just challenge all of the vaccines? Um, and I think that you know the, the judge looking at this you know, recognized from the outset that this was not a serious legal argument um, and dismissed it and used you know, very strong words in his dismissal, um, you know, not just criticizing uh, the governor's um, theory of law, but criticizing the very decision that the governor made uh, to try to interfere with the uh, Pentagon's ability to require vaccines for servicemen and women in Oklahoma serving in the Guard and uh, Air National Guard. Geneva, I believe Judge Fry had even mentioned George Washington requiring his troops to get vaccinated against smallpox back in the in the uh, the 18th century. That's that's exactly right. I mean, I think I think Ryan is exactly correct when he says, I mean, the level of um, the wording of this particular uh, this particular ruling uh, by this uh, federal district judge is significant. I mean, he went so far uh, as to say that that the non-compliant members of the guard basically didn't have the benefit of what he called well-informed leadership at the highest levels of the guard. I mean, that's strong language. And and you're right uh, in terms, Michael, of of him bringing in the fact that uh, the uh, military immunization mandates date back all the way to General George Washington uh, when he had the uh, troops in the Continental Congress uh, um, mandated to be inoculated against smallpox. So uh, he goes on beyond that to point out that this would be the 10th vaccine that's been mandated. Um, he makes the point, uh, and I thought uh, it was not certainly not lost on anyone reading it, that uh, he went so far as to say that this virus uh, had already killed more Americans uh, that, uh, it, than in any action in all of the wars that the United States has ever fought. So, I mean, it was a strongly worded, um, strongly, uh, strongly worded, and I think um, it it certainly gives pause in the future for folks to take a look at uh, uh, actions that are being taken. I mean, in, in this instance, I mean, we know that the Adjutant General, while he backed the governor's position, um, he also has gone on now to acknowledge that uh, that guard members ultimately can be and will be called into federal duty under uh, Title 10 of the U.S. Code. And that means that that mandate, in fact, would be enforced, would be in place. So uh, how all of this goes on down the road in terms of the give and take uh, and the governor um, and his folks uh, continuing to take on these kind of vaccine mandate challenges, I think what we've seen in this instance is that we were the only state in the country, I believe, that has challenged uh, this in terms of uh, National Guard members. So um, it's a story that we've talked about multiple times, even on this show. It's something that I think people do pay attention to. Um, and I think uh, in this instance, it, it kind of added even to the level of attention by what uh, the words that were uh, um, conveyed by uh, Judge Friot. Governor Stitt's brother is challenging a speeding ticket. And normally, this wouldn't make news, except for the fact that Keith Stitt is using McGirt versus Oklahoma as the basis for the challenge. His attorneys say the 2020 U.S. Supreme Court decision means Tulsa doesn't have jurisdiction as he is a member of the Cherokee tribe. Neva, the hearing is set for Wednesday, but what are your thoughts on this challenge? 
Well, I mean, it's 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 a little bit convoluted when you look at the fact that you have this Tulsa Municipal Court judge. I mean, kind of uh, he's gone back and forth in his own rulings. I mean, uh, he's been on both sides of of the coin on uh, what he thinks about uh, uh, where McGirt lands on this. And so I think that, uh, you know, I think you're right. A traffic ticket of 20 miles over uh, uh, in a 50 mile uh, uh, zone uh, and a ticket that ultimately would be about $250. I mean, if it, if the, if it had been paid, I mean, it, it, it begs this larger question that clearly the governor by his own admission says, I mean, is an attempt to just further bring uh, shed light on the fact that he has this heartburn and has this real issue with uh, McGirt and, uh, and certainly the ongoing give and take confrontation and combative combative nature that the governors had with the uh, with uh, tribal leader and the uh, uh, tribal nations. So I think um, I think we'll see what happens uh, when this goes to court. Uh, it's it's something that's actually gone on for a while. I mean, when you read the the accounts, I mean, this is something where there was a bench warrant, warrant issued. Uh, then the attorney finally came uh, in front of the uh, the judge and representing uh, the uh, Kevin Stitt's brother, and then th that was that was a rescinded. So it's it's a good give and take. Make some big headlines, and we'll just have to see uh, what the uh, end result of all of this really turns out to be. Ryan, yeah, it, it strikes me as as a bit of a gimmick uh, of a of a case. Uh, like Neva said, most folks would have just paid the two hundred dollars. Um, you know, especially people that could afford the two hundred dollars. The people that can't afford the two hundred dollars. Uh, they're the ones that, you know, drive around and are in danger of going into a jail uh, on any given day of their life. Um, but you now let's let's assume that the governor's brother could have afforded the two hundred and fifty dollars or whatever it was going to be. To me, this, again, just strikes at a gimmick meant to drive a message of, oh, look how ridiculous it is. We can't even issue traffic citations in the second largest city in the state of Oklahoma if um, the person we're issuing a traffic citation to happens to be uh, an enrolled member or citizen of a particular tribal nation that has a treaty right that's been recognized as valid uh, and not extinguished by Congress. So that's, that's kind of where we are. I, I think that um, the, the real story here is that these issues, to the extent that they do create uh, challenges, well, let's not say problems, but challenges in the administration of justice um, can be solved many times by interlocal agreements, by cross deputization agreements. Um, you know, that happens with tribes large and small and communities large and small across the state of Oklahoma, so that there is um, a recognition and a, an agreed to, a negotiated agreed to sharing of jurisdiction in particular cases. And I think that that's what makes sense here. I mean, the the real problem uh, from the outset of this is that to the extent McGurk created any sort of problem uh, or challenges for the administration of justice in the state of Oklahoma, there are answers and solutions to them, but they require everybody to sit down at the table uh, in good faith and come up with solutions that work for everyone. Uh, and that means that the state of Oklahoma, uh, the sovereign tribes and nations uh, that that share a border with the state of Oklahoma um, and the federal government. And as I've said many times, the, the federal government, Congressman Tom Cole seems to be there. Uh, most of the tribe of 
tribes, if not all of the tribes in the state of Oklahoma are there. It's the governor's office uh, that has consistently put itself outside that conversation. And until they're there and want to play a productive role, I mean, they'll be able to point to problems like this, but they shouldn't be able to point to a point problem like this and say there's not a solution because there is and it's just being ignored. A recent poll shows a strong lead for David Holt in his reelection bid as Oklahoma City Mayor. The survey shows 61 percent of voters would vote for him compared to his opponents in the upcoming February 8th election. Ryan, this seems to be good news for the Holt campaign. I think that uh, David Holt uh, could go hunting um, in the woods uh, for the next how how many weeks to the election? What have we got? Four weeks. February 8th. Four weeks. I mean, he could go out for four weeks um, and he'll be fine. Uh, He'll be fine. He's he's going to win by by a huge margin. Um, I think that you know, I'm, I'm going to vote for David Holt for, for mayor. Um, I know that some of my progressive friends, uh, you know, will pull their hair out at that. But even though I've disagreed with the mayor on, on a number of fronts, um, you know, I find him a smart, intelligent uh, and, and thoughtful and responsive individual um, that if I've always um, you know, seen as a as a partner in, in projects that he and I have had uh, that have overlapped. And I uh, got to know him whenever he was uh, chair of the Ralph Ellison Foundation Board of Directors, of which I served, and got to know him outside of politics there as well. Um, it's it's not difficult to see why so many people in Oklahoma City are ready to see him reelected mayor. Um, you know, again, uh, this is you know the the biggest political question for Mayor Holt isn't um, is he going to be reelected mayor? It's what does he do when he's not mayor anymore? Um, and I think that there his path may not be uh, as as wide as uh, he would hope it would be unless he does something like Joy Hoffmeister and switches parties or even goes to the independent route to avoid a, a statewide Republican primary. Because as much as Oklahoma City loves Mayor Holt, um, the Republican primary electorate across the state may have uh, other thoughts. Neva. And I think that's basically what we're seeing in this uh, in this election, the way it sets up. I mean, the uh, the mayor has uh, three challengers, uh, two Republicans, one Democrat, even though it's nonpartisan. But that does begin to kind of set the the stage in terms of how voters are being uh, communicated with and kind of what the approach has been. And and Ryan is right. I mean, the the uh, mayor is certainly uh, um, someone that. a large segment of very strongly conservative Republicans across uh, Oklahoma City have had uh, have had issues with uh, on a number of number of not only uh, city issues but just the fact that uh, uh, they've they've been at odds on many of the bigger issues and in, in terms of. Um, uh, party-driven uh, issues and ideology. But all of that being said as the backdrop, four years ago, David Holt was elected with almost 79% of the vote. Uh, the polling that we just talked about that, that was released uh, indicates that if you, uh, uh, the number of 61% of, of, of the registered voters polled. But when you look at most likely voters, I mean, uh, one of the things that was pointed out in that survey was that his support actually expands to about 72%. So when you're looking at uh, an election that is uh, less than a month away, you're looking at uh, underfunded candidates uh, right now with very low name ID, according to this uh, this particular survey uh, that was released. 
and you're looking at uh, the the incumbent mayor sitting on uh, more than at the time on the third quarter report 700,000 uh, that had been raised uh, and you know probably most of that's still on hand with the capacity to have raised a significant amount more uh, since that time before the uh, end of the fourth quarter reporting um, I mean he certainly sets up as Ryan says I mean to to appear to not uh, be in a threatened position for re-election but that being said, every election you have to take seriously. And I think uh, even when we talk about uh, four years ago being elected by an overwhelming uh, majority of Oklahoma City voters uh, that went to the polls, that number was only about 20,000 uh, plus voters that actually went to the polls. So, I mean, this is uh, the, the biggest enemy in elections like this is turnout. And so you have to motivate your people. And sometimes uh, when you are thought to be you know, the candidate that has no problems and everyone uh, expects you to win. Many times it's those very supporters, your strongest supporters that uh, sometimes sit at home or don't take the action to to go to the polls and vote. And it can become uh, it can become problematic. So I think we'll see some intensity um, across the board in this race in the in the closing stretch, probably in the final 10 days where most of the money will be spent. Um, and I think uh, at this point, I mean, if anyone were handicapping the race, they would certainly say that uh, it's the mayors for uh, for reelection by a significant majority. But there's still a race that has to happen. Voters still have to go to the polls. And um, I don't think anybody should be dismissive when people put their names on the ballot that um, that there's going to be an effort made by uh, each of these other individuals. Uh, and, you know, in 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 this instance, I think, um, frankly, there has been really uh, very little attention paid to the fact that we have a major municipal election in the largest city in our state, even uh, even uh, getting ready to uh, happen uh, in less in less than a month. So uh, I think the expectation is that uh, that if the mayor wins, it would be with 50% plus one, a certainly a large enough uh, uh, number that that there would not be a runoff election in April. So we'll wait and see uh, what else unfolds on this. But uh, clearly, there's going to be some, I think, give and take and some swinging by se several of these candidates going after the mayor. The question is, can they communicate that message in a significant enough way for voters to really stop and pay attention? Orion and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.